0: Welcome back for episode two of the second season of the 80s and 90s Cricket Show. I'm Gary Naylor. Our guests this week are Mike Selvey, former Chief Cricket Correspondent of The Guardian. Hello, Mike. Hello, Gary. Derek Pringle, former cricketer and freelance cricket writer. Hello, Derek. Hi, Gary. And Rob Smythe, freelance cricket writer. You, Hello, Rob. You,
1: you missed the former cricketer bit. <laughs> Hello, Gary. How are you
0: doing? Uh, I'm okay, Rob. So, before we begin, can I say a big thanks to our sponsor, Mark Selleck of Anderton Law. None of this happens without his hard work behind the scenes. So, thank you, Mark. This week, we're looking at the career of the old warhorse, and I suspect he was first so labelled when he was still a teenager, Angus Fraser. And in our second innings, we'll focus on the West Indies Tour of 1991. So a quick reminder of uh, Angus Fraser's career. 46 tests, taking 177 wickets at the very decent average of 27. His first-class career actually lasted for 18 years, from 1984 to 2002, taking 886 wickets. And we'll come to this... Uh, In his last year of Test cricket, he played 14 tests, taking 58 wickets at 23. So it was quite a sharp closure back in 1998. So I'll begin with you, Mike. Um, What made Angus Fraser such an effective bowler?
2: Well, it's his phrase, isn't it? Kiss, isn't it? Keep it simple, stupid. That was Gus. There was no... There's no great frills to it. He, he, he ran up, as uh, our late friend Martin Johnson once wrote, like a, like a man who's got his braces caught on the sight screen. He kind of trampled in. He, he bowled very high. In fact, his arm was slightly beyond 12 o'clock. He almost bowled a bit from 11 o'clock, a bit like Courtney Walsh or Ben Stokes does now a little bit. So he was always coming in at the bats. When he bowled at the stumps, he bowled a, just a relentless length. He bowled top of off stump. It did a little bit off the pitch. He didn't swing the ball. He kept going. He was just at them all the time, and there were no great fills to it. It really wasn't a, a, a game for him of of elaborations or fills or fripperies. It was just very, very simple
0: and effective. Derek, why didn't more bowlers do that? Because Mike makes it sound, and indeed, that's the impression we got from the uh, from the stands and on television that that. You know he 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 just ran in and and did the same thing over and over again, but um there's surely more more to it from from a bowler 's perspective well, I think the,
3: the quick answer to that is that it's it 's damn hard work <laughs> he will tell you if you ever go and ask yeah. him about his bowling. Um, he yeah, had quite a long run-up as well, Gus, so he, he charged in as, as best he could. He, he wasn't a natural athlete, I'd say, but uh, he was very fit, worked hard on his fitness. And, and you know, captains like Graham Gooch and Mike Atherton they loved him because he was hard-working. You know, he spoke his mind as well, was an honest, honest with it. And uh, But um, I suppose it's a bit like Glenn McGrath. I remember s- somebody saying to... Or, discussion was that you know why doesn't Glenn McGrath try and swing the ball he said well I don't want to swing it much actually I just want to hammer away just outside off stump top of off as as Mike says that awkward length and if it just does a little bit off the seam that's all I want whereas I I view things very differently I I marvel at people who could swing the ball and and what have you and I always wanted to do that but uh, I remember asking Gus once you know don't you want to learn to swing it he went no (laughs) well, <laughs> should I he said, yes. you know, I've got where I've got, doing what I do, and, and I'm going to stick with it. And as Mike said, very simple philosophy, but uh, very effective.
2: McGrath, you see, in my opinion, was the, with the, <laughs> he got all those wickets. He was actually the best defensive bowler in the history of the game, possibly.
3: You know, well, it, Aussie, just... Aussie Australia's defended with the ball, didn't they? Really, so if you think absolutely
2: they it. did, and he he relied, as you say, not so much on movement on bounce. Actually, was really important for him, and indeed a bit of that with with Gus. So it was a very similar modus operandi.
0: Yeah I always think there's a, he was kind of like a a bowling equivalent of Alistair Cook you know Cook probably only had 3 shots but you know that was that was enough to to get the job done and and do so effectively um Rob as a uh, someone like myself uh, outside the uh, boundary rope what was it that made Gus Fraser such a a kind of England cult hero in lots of ways
1: I think it was just, or at first it was how good he was, he was immediately impressive and he sustained that pretty much all his career. But I think it was, you could visibly see how hard he worked, how much he cared. There, there's a lot of talk, I mean, the Mike Johnson quote is just lovely. It's just, I feel like every player we talk about in here, there's a Mike Johnson quote that just is better <laughs> yeah. than anything anyone could have written. But I think it's just also, you, there's a lot of talk about him being grumpy and stuff, but I I, I don't know whether that's true, but I always feel like there are, lovable grumps and unlovable grumps. And he was absolutely a lovable grump, certainly from afar, because there was there was no sense that he was kind of compromising with a team or dragging people down. If he was grumpy, it's just because, as Derek said, and as he said a million times, it was bloody hard work. i also feel like in that era, I know he had a, a couple of dips, mainly because of the hip injury and the railing worth, but he was just one the one the England players you, you could completely rely on as a fan. You know, you'd you hope that he was in the team. And also, if you trace back most of England's Eye-catching wins in the nineties. He had a lot to do with them. His record as a match winner is probably better than a lot of people realise. I had a quick look actually, and he, I think he in wins he took seventy-eight wickets to seventeen. And that average is better than, among others, Truman Broad, Anderson, both of Willis Statham. So he actually was in his own kind of not efficient. There's a better word, I'm sure, but in his own way, he was a match winner. And as an England fan in the nineties, you were you were desperate for those.
3: What was interesting about Gusto for the sort of bowler he was is that his in test matches, at least, his his record overseas was better in terms of mm. average bowling average than it was at home, because you know you often talk about English conditions bowlers, and you know he'd have probably been lumped into that unless people had, had analysed his figures. And in fact, uh, he took ninety wickets at twenty nine at home and eighty seven at twenty five abroad, which is and he was he was great yeah.
2: Caribbean, wasn't he? Yeah, well, I, that's exactly it. that. I asked him about this uh, today actually, and he. He says exactly that. The Caribbean, Caribbean suited him, because the pitches weren't quick and bouncy. They were they were slow. He could hit the stumps. He could bowl out the stumps. Bowl the stumps. It yeah. did just yeah. It did just enough. Uh, and also the way that the West Indies played, their, you know the way they batted, the way they tried to get on top of it after it, kind of suited that as well. You know he, you know two of his two of his biggest successes were in the were in the Caribbean. Two of they two of his big innings, the, the one in Bridgetown. Where he won the game in the first innings, really, with that, and bowled himself into the deck. There got eight for, and also the one in Trinidad, where he got another eight in Trinidad. Very similar circumstances, very similar pitches. The one in Bridgetown, of course, came straight after the forty-six all out, didn't it? In the in Trinidad before that, so it it, it kind of resurrected England England's fortunes a little bit on on that trip. Um, he did these things in the first innings too, often, which was a big thing, you know. it Kind of. Open the gate, if you like. It, 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 it was Gus in, in Jamaica, wasn't it, who, who got wickets there that propelled England to, their, to their, that, that win in Sabina Park at the start of the series there.
0: Yeah, and he also took six wickets at the MCG, uh, so that underlines his, his ability to, to do so well away from home. I want to look at his career in a little more detail. 39 of his 46 tests were against very strong Australia, West Indies and South Africa teams. And in those uh, test matches, he bowled 358 maidens of 1,502 overs. So it's almost a quarter of the overs he's bowling are are maidens. And that maybe reflects a different kind of cricket where if the ball was on a a line and length, then very often met a defensive bat. There was none of this sort of uh, getting on top of the bowling the way there is today, or certainly not as much of it as there is today. So my question here is, did he also take wickets at the other end, bowling maidens, applying the pressure, and then uh, someone cleaning up at the other end from him? I mean, Derek, you must have bowled at the other end from Fraser at times. Not in
3: a test match. Ah. I, mean, I never never played in a test match together. I played a few one days. Yeah, uh, but never a test. I think we were probably mutually exclusive. And In fact, it was yeah. due to Gus's injury to his hip, I think, that, that got me a sort of another nibble in the 91 against the West the series you're going to talk about later. Because I think if Gus had been fit, I probably wouldn't have played in that. But um, yeah, let's always talk about that. Um, it's usually bowlers are a bit more frightening than Gus who, who get you wickets <laughs> at the other end and as and as, as mike's just said the, you know the West Indies would play shots against him, so that and that played into his 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 U.S.P. of course um, but um I suppose if someone's keeping one end tight, there's always the chance that you know batsmen are going to feel that you know a bit of, you know you take need to take advantage of someone at the other end and Undoubtedly, he might have got the old one, but I wouldn't have thought it was a huge shift in that he he got loads of wickets for people at the other end.
1: At the risk of turning this into a boring stat fest, I actually had a look at this. So, games he played, this is not when he bowls; you can't dig that deep. But in the tests he played, he averaged twenty-seven. All the other England bowlers averaged thirty-nine. So that suggests he wasn't necessarily getting wickets at the other end, but it also, I suppose, shows how good he was. Yeah, it shows, how, it shows. Yeah, all this just
2: reinforces what we said about his method. Yeah, there's also a thing about bowlers who kind of resent the idea. I used to get it come the other way to me. I used to say, well, I used to get wickets because of people were playing shots against me and, uh, you know, because they didn't want to face Wayne and stuff like that at Middlesex. And we resent that kind of thing, don't we, Derek? It's
3: uh, um, it's disparaging. Dep- depends how many you got caught at mid-off, so. <laughs> well, not, not not very many. I didn't have a mid-off very but often, exactly. Derek. Yeah, exactly. So... Yeah. Exactly. Um, exactly.
2: so you know, it, it, it works both ways, that. And, and I think what you're actually implying there, Gary, is that, and correctly, is that bowling is about partnerships. Yeah. It's, about, uh, it's about a collaboration. Uh, we see it all the time, don't we? And uh, so it's, it's not one or the other. It's, it's how they complement each other.
0: Yeah, which which leads to my next question, really. I mean, maybe this is a leading question. You know, Why was he so poorly treated by England, especially Ray Illingworth? Is that a leading question? Was he poorly treated or was he you know, difficulties with the hip and with injuries and so on? But he did seem to be in and out, often for reasons that were not particularly discernible. Well, Illingworth was
3: post-hip. Uh, he'd come back yeah. from his hip injury there, which initially was misdiagnosed, actually. And it's only when he saw a specialist uh, up in Cambridge that, who did an arthroscopy on his hip that it was all sorted out because he was told that he had some something um, necrotizing something or other. Uh, and, and that he had to wear these magnetic underpants. Yeah, They're so the <laughs> electric underpants. So everyone, to... everyone had to <laughs> rip the him yeah. for that. But, yeah. but well, I, think, be... I think he was badly treated by Ily because he'd played all five tests of an English summer and then when they came to pick the Ashes squad, he was left out uh, with no word from anybody about it. And uh, I think he sensed that you know Ily really wanted to go for pace and he didn't think Gus was quick enough for Australian pitchers, which may or may not have been true, but he'd have done a good job for you of keeping it tight. He may not have run through people with Fifers, but um he'd have done a good job for you. And and I think Illy also felt that he was too close to Mike Allerton, the captain, and Illy, Illy I think wanted yeah. to assert some control. Actually he got left out of the last test of
2: that previous summer of South Africa. He missed the Devon nine for game, didn't he? Um he got dropped for that. And I think that was the one preceded the ashes. He didn't get picked for the ashes Raymond liked pace. He wanted a bit of pace in there, so he picked people like Martin McKay, didn't he, and Joe Benjamin Goffey would have been there, would he? Um, yes, yeah, Goffey was there. But, but and Joey's Dominic, not quick. no, but he got wickets, didn't he? And, he, and he? and Dominic Cork, he liked, he liked his his kind of attitude. And Gus went off to play club cricket in Sydney. And uh, and of course, what happened was that he eventually got a call up, came and played in Sydney, and got wickets. Got five the hip injury was unfortunate for him at that time because his career, you know, it was only in his, his infancy then. And he says that he thinks he did it in fielding in Perth, a game against Western Australia. He fell over, banged his hip and he thinks a, a lump of cartilage might have come off there. But as Derek said, it was misdiagnosed. But beyond that and beyond how Raymond felt about him, I don't think he was harshly treated by England at all. I thought, they, I thought they valued him very highly.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I think it was just that one blind spot that Ray Ellingworth had over him and a few senior players, actually. But apart from that, he was picked pretty much whenever he was available. He was he was so popular, and particularly when he came back after two and a half years, what sounds like almost relentless misery, and took eight wickets at the Oval and beat Australia. He felt like one of the few bankers they had, really, in the 90s for most of the time.
2: He, he thinks that he... He made himself a bit persona non grata by by being very gussy and uh, just having a real moan about not being picked. He did an interview for the News of the World with David Norrie, in which he basically said he didn't, you know, he he, he didn't like it. He thought he hadn't been treated properly, and of course that got tickled up into uh, gutless he, in he English. <laughs> that, 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 i think that's what it was wasn't it something of yeah. that Ill. Yeah. Got it me. cost him it cost him two grand fines for that he, he didn't um, uh he didn't think he was raymond would have taken too kindly to that also he said he, he resented not finding out about not being picked for that ashes you know he only learned about that through watching it on the tv and nobody bothered to give him a call at all and he thought he deserve
0: that, and I'd I, I go along with that,
1: yeah. Yeah, that's not good enough, is it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's look at the end of his uh, test career, because it's in 1998. He has a couple of, of poor tests in Brisbane and, and Melbourne, but, God, plenty of uh, English players have. He's aged 33. He's had a, a year in which he's done outstandingly well. 58 wickets, as I mentioned, at 23 and 14 tests. Um. But uh, at 33, he never gets picked for England again, uh, certainly in Test cricket. Although he was he was picked for the 1999 World Cup, and he was uh, fit enough to captain Middlesex in 2001. Um, so England have a, a a reliable, as we said, a reliable, popular player. Maybe a little bit awkward, but at, at 33. Um, they don't pick him in, in test cricket again, uh, What's the, what was the reasoning
2: here? Well I suppose he, he stopped taking wickets, you know, he didn't get wickets in Brisbane, he got one in each innings in Brisbane, he got two for a nothing and naught in the second innings, he, he wasn't opening the bowling. He, was bowling he was bowling four fifth chains sometimes, which seemed a bit odd and I guess he's you know thought his time was up there but he did actually, in Brisbane, you know, in that Brisbane game, he he did um, teams always opposing Australia, a huge favour in that. Derek will remember this because he dropped Ian Healy at, uh, <laughs> yeah. at third man yes. quite early on in the innings. And Ian Healy got 134 and it kept Adam Gilchrist away from international cricket for about <laughs> another year or two years. So, so Gus did the game a, a great favour beyond the Australian game. <laughs>
3: of a swirler I remember it it was red face swirler he
2: was one of those ones that went up there and he just knew that he got no he, he went round and round and round under this thing and uh, I think, and I, think I think
3: I think perhaps what it is is that um, maybe those who pick test teams and those who know you quite well know when you've 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 gone over the peak of your career and and you know He's a big guy, Gus, and, and most fast bowlers back then didn't go beyond 34, 35 yeah. max. And I, th- I think those who knew him well knew that he, it was past his best. And therefore, when you pass your best, unless you're going to do an extremely good job for the side, you, you look for the next generation, don't you? And while he could still yeah. do a job for Middlesex, he wasn't able to perhaps, or, or the people who selected the team didn't think he was be- going to be able to do one for them.
2: It's an interesting concept that, isn't it? Selection, you know, they, they've got this mantra at the moment, which I, I think it's uh, uh, flawed, which is, you know, better to give somebody one game too many than one too few. And I think that totally misses the art of selection, which is making that judgment call when at the right time. And I think that was the case with with Gus. They might well have made a good call there, actually. And uh, bearing in mind that he was still close to others and it uh, might even have been an, an element of, of kind of self projection in
0: that in that too, Rob. Um, do you? I mean, as fans, I think we were all disappointed, weren't we, for all of the reasons that we're, we're hearing.
1: Yeah, but I think it's worth remembering how well he did in that last year. As you said, I mean, it's yeah. not just the, the stats; it's the, the games that he won. I mean, he took eight for in Trinidad and they lost, but then he took nine in the match in the follow-up game in Trinidad, which they won. When you think of the South Africa win in '98, you think of Adam McDonald quite rightly. But I, the biggest reason I won that series is that. Fraser took three consecutive fifers in the last two tests. So he was. I think he was still fine. Obviously, this was an issue throughout his career after his injury about whether he needed a bit in the pitch. I think at that age, he could certainly still do it when there's a bit in the pitch. But by the time he got back to England in '99, it was complete chaos. You know, They'd gone out of the World Cup, they had a new captain, they didn't have a coach. So I just think it was a bit chaotic. I mean, he almost played one test that So It's almost a, well, not a funny way to end his test career, but I think he was called up as cover. He was in Taunton. In a restaurant, and he got a call from David Graveney to drive to Lord's. And I think he was about halfway there, and he got a call to say, Forget (laughs) it, turn back. It was just cover for
3: someone. It might have been Dean Headley, I'm not sure.
1: No, he, okay, got imagine... to the Chiswick,
3: he got to the Chiswick roundabout, Rob, and then the call came <laughs> through, and he just kept, went kept ran round the roundabout, and went back the other way. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you can imagine his internal monologue at that point. <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think in, certainly in Australia, it was hard. It had become really hard work, and I think that catch. I'm not saying this is fair, but it felt symbolic. Like you said, he was all red faced, and he just felt like someone who, you know, Australian. In the same way, I know they were older, but they would be a bit too much for Gooch and Gatting four years earlier. I think it felt like somebody was coming towards the end. Personally I still think he could have and would have taken wickets in ninety nine against New Zealand, but it was chaotic and England had decided to kind of move on and I don't think you can necessarily
0: argue with that. No, so my my final question, this is for sort of each of you, and we've already alluded to it a little. Is he in that category of, of bowlers short of express pace? Who have been undervalued by England? If you if you look at their records, um, we've already said that you know Illingworth was was looking for for pace. Jimmy Anderson will finish his, his career with this extraordinary record, but um, there was a time when he wasn't quick enough. Uh, is is Gus Fraser one of one of those bowlers? No, I mean
2: <laughs> Raven was an outlier in that. I, I can't think of any bowler of that era for a player for England who was more valued, to be honest with you. I think Gus was a, was a superb bowler for England and was appreciated as such. As, as, as uh, Derek said, you know, that uh, others was um, very close to others, and, and one of the reasons they were very close was because he was utterly, utterly reliable.
3: Yeah, well, I, I tend to agree with all that. I think, you know, he was... He's my kind of guy because he's, he's the ultimate team man. He, he he would have whinged a bit occasionally <laughs> and, and given as good as yeah. he got in an argument in the dressing room. But ultimately, on the pitch, he gave absolutely everything to the cause. And you can't ask for, for more than that. And, uh, you know, for me, he, he's an absolute, you know, it's an overused word in, in cricket, but he's, he's an absolute diamond.
0: <laughs> maybe maybe it's, it's us fans, Rob, because, you know, I, I, I look at it, I think 46 tests over what is it, nine years of, of test cricket. I would rather hope he did played 92 tests rather than 46. I know there were injuries. But... Yeah,
1: I, I I agree with what Mike and Derek said. I think the big thing was the hip injury. That cost him two and a half years between the ages eight of what, 25 and 28. And I think it was 26 tests he missed, He missed. And he'd have played them all. And, have, and at that stage, he was taking, I mean, whatever the talk at the end of his career, at that stage, he was brilliant on flat pitches as well. The, the famous game at Lords in 1990 when, it was an orgy of runs and I think he ends up like eight for 130 in the match same at Melbourne when he took that six for so I think that's the big regret personally apart from the Inningworth thing which you know is just a, a personal thing I, I don't feel of him think of him as an unfulfilled talent because of selection there were there a lost couple of years because he really didn't fancy him but that kind of happened. I don't think he was consistently poorly treated um, oh, yeah. but the injury is the big regret definitely
3: yeah, I, mean, I imagine that uh, had he played ninety tests, he'd he'd have had a better test record
0: than Stuart Broad. Really? Yeah, wow. I mean
1: his average is pretty much yeah. there, is there. He was a fantastic bowler. We really shouldn't forget that.
0: We absolutely. Oh, shouldn't. one thing actually, I
1: think not necessarily the three best bowlers, but three of the more high-profile bowlers. I'm pretty sure Goff, Cadigan, and Fraser never played a test together, which just seems really, really strange. I don't know, how to kind of mitigates circumstances, injuries and stuff. But I'd love to have seen those three together at some point.
3: Well, you, I think he must have played with Caddick.
1: Yeah, he did in the oh, character. And he played with Goffey, but never took, I mean, the three of them.
3: I mean, my old, my old captain at Essex, uh, I remember him saying to me, he said, if you, if you could have a bowler, he said, with Caddick's skill and Gus Fraser's heart, he said, it'd be the best bowler we've had for a while. And, and
1: also, <laughs> Fraser in the first innings and Caddick
0: in the second. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he'd be glenn mcgraw that we mentioned earlier on i think <laughs> um okay so um we're, we're pretty much coming to the end of our uh look at gus fraser our, our player of of the week he later went on to be an acerbic presence in the uh in the media centers both uh writing and on television and then um, became an administrator uh in the game and is still in the game now um we may, may just uh, ask Mike and Derek: Is there is, there, is there any? Can you give us any backstage gossip with Gus Fraser's ultra dry sense of humour? Any any times where he's uh, he's amused you guys? I uh, will well, t- tell
2: you one thing that did amuse me hugely. It would have amused Derek. Didn't amuse him very much. Was was when he was uh, he was in New Zealand on tour, and we corporately but separately were driving from Taupo down to Wellington for the test match and there's a long stretch of road south of Lake Taupo called the Desert Highway and it's straight but it's undulating and Gus was sharing a car with um, Dino I think Derek wasn't it Dean, Wilson, yeah, I of so, Dean the, Wilson of the Mirror and now there's a speed limit in New Zealand well, where you are 50 mile an hour is the speed limit but Gus was driving and he thought this stretch of road there's nobody on it I'm going to put the hammer down. And, of course, he got right to the top of this hill at the end of it, and there at the top was the police car waiting for him. <laughs> and instead of Gus saying, look, I'm really, really sorry, it was like, you know, it was clear road, I didn't realise how fast I was going, and I apologise, he got bullshit with him. Yeah. And you've got anything better to do? You know, we'll go catch criminals, that, that kind <coughs> of thing. And they confiscated his licence on the spot there which is all very well, but uh, Denise's wife, was coming out and they were going to be touring the vineyards um, after the tour. And Denise fundamentally said, well, if you think I'm driving you around so you can get pissed and I can't, <laughs> you've, got, you've got another thing coming. And I think they cancelled the trip.
3: He always, yeah. he always used to give Matthew Engel's stick because Engel once described him as Pringle without the elegance, which <laughs> really miffed him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: super stuff, who, who would have thought that we'd conclude our look at uh, Angus Fraser by saying he was actually too fast <laughs> but, but there we are <laughs> well, That's true yeah. Our series of the week takes us back to 1991, England against the West Indies And spoiler alert, it finishes 2-2 we start with the ODI series, which was then a, a very much a curtain raiser for the tests, which England won 3-0, each result more convincing than the last. Was this the first sign that the West Indies aura was beginning to fade? Let's have a look at the composition of the sides. England still had uh, Graham Gooch by then 38 and Alan Lamb 37. Uh, They were joined by uh, Robin Smith and uh, Mark Ramprakash, 21, in his debut season, and Graham Hick, a man whose career we've covered as a player of the week in an earlier episode of the 80s and 90s Cricket Show, who was uh, making his long-awaited bow in test cricket. The bowling was led by Phil DeFratis and somebody called Derek Pringle uh, and was supported by a revolving cast, including the likes of Steve Watkin, Chris Lewis, David Lawrence... Richard Illingworth, Devon Malcolm, and, coming on a little bit like the woman used to sing at the end of the Morecambe & Wise show, for the fifth test only, Ian Botham and Philip Tufnell. The West Indies could call on Viv Richards, by then 39, Desmond Haynes opening, uh, Richie Richardson under the sun hat, and Carl Hooper, and uh, Geoffrey Dujon was still behind the stumps, Malcolm Marshall, then at 33, led the attack, supported by a frightening cast of Courtney Walsh, Kirtley Ambrose and Patrick Patterson. Carl Hooper only took two wickets in the five tests. Let's start with Rob, the composition of those sides, uh, Rob. It's quite an array of talent, isn't it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, you could say that. Yeah, about the the question about the aura fading, I'm not sure that was necessarily the case, partly because it was one-day cricket, but they'd actually lost 3-0 in the ODIs in 88 and then yeah. bounced back ever so slightly to win the Test 4-0. I think <laughs> I think there was an acceptance that they weren't as strong as they had been in the 80s, but they were still formidable. They'd just beaten Australia, who had just hammered England. West Indies had beaten them. It was 2-1, but actually it was a lot... More emphatic than that, Australia had a dead rubber victory, really kind of nasty series. So they undoubtedly saw the world's best team, even though, as you said, from the ages of some of the key players. I mean, Gordon Greenwich was 40, he was part of the tour, but got injured in the ODIs and never played again, was replaced by Phil Simmons. Even Malcolm Marshall, you know, by this stage he was a change bowler. I mean, imagine having a change bowler that good, but it just shows that the, the tight had age, but I still think they were pretty scary. I mean, Derek and Michael obviously have a better idea, but... Because England had just been thumped by Australia, it was a tour when Greg Gooch said it was like a fart competing with Thunder. It felt now like a fart was competing with the apocalypse. I didn't <laughs> think as a fan that England had any chance, but obviously I was blissfully wrong.
0: What was it like, Derek, taking the field and looking across and, and seeing the likes of uh, Viv Richards, Desmond Haynes, Malcolm Marshall?
3: Well, it wasn't my first experience of that, of course. I yeah. played
0: against them in 84 and 88, and,
3: and as Rob has pointed out, we got absolutely smacked in those series. Despite in, in in 88 having won the Texaco one-day series 3-0 and, and pretty convincingly on that occasion, but uh, it didn't really count for much in the tests. No, I just think if you look at that team that went on the field for them at Headingley, I mean the bowling attack, Malcolm Marshall, Curly Ambrose, Courtney Walsh, Patrick Patterson, that's probably the highest <laughs> aggregate MPH ever assembled in a test match. <laughs> I can't think of another test where perhaps that was exceeded anyway. But um, it was it was daunting, there's no doubt about it. But I guess, you know, a lot of them played in county cricket, so they weren't kind of something that was unknown, an unknown peril. You know, we knew them pretty well. And I think for that series, in the past, I think England had certainly, in the first uh, attempts with Gooch, Gooch was captain, that they tried to perhaps meet fire with fire against the West Indies. But I think for this one, they rethought that. and And it was... It was more a question of actually just being obdurate and, and, you know, occupying the crease, make it make it hard for them. Don't roll over, basically making it occupy the crease and bowl accurately. You know, make them work
0: hard for their runs and their wickets. So the first test is at Headingley, and it includes, and indeed is won by, one of the most celebrated innings in, not just in English test history, but in in test history, Graham Gooch's 154 not out. Um, Mike, what made that innings so extraordinarily... um, It's rated, I think, under the algorithms as the greatest... Test innings. What what made it so?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree with that it's certainly the the greatest Test innings that I've witnessed. Possibly the greatest Test innings. And maybe maybe Lara's innings in in Bridgetown comes uh, against Australia comes up there. Um, people tend to equate Gucci's one with Ben's effort at heading. Ben Stokes' effort at heading. I think they were different different contexts. Gucci's was unquestionably. And Derek, you know, Derek played in the game. Derek batted with him in in that innings. And and I'm sure we'll vouch that it was without Gooch, the game was lost. I mean, he won the game. You know, he scored 154 not out. And and the second highest scores were Derek's 27 and and Mark Ramprakash's 27. You know, about seven hours against that attack. And it was a low scoring game, wasn't it? It was obviously overcast right through it. It was a pitch that did a little bit against that attack. It was it was just a remarkable technical display of, of batting against high quality pace bowling.
1: I don't think he gave a chance, did he?
3: No, I, I don't. I don't think he was actually put down. There was there was um, he hit a ball to sort of casual drive to mid off. Had they been a bit more alert, they might have caught the catch. And the West Indies thought he nick one down the leg side, but he he claims that he didn't think he got a bat on it. So. Because some of them refused to clap his hundred, so they they thought felt strongly that he'd got something on it, but um, he he said not. But I I, I remember speaking to him because I, I read a piece about that innings for a book that was you know about great Test innings, and um, he said he didn't he reckoned he didn't middle more than seven or eight shots in the entire seven and a half hours, and I suppose that's that's really what separates the great from the good. You know, the good
0: batsmen can get a hundred when everything's in their favour, but the great sort of get one when when they're not. I mean, you were at the other end, Derek, for two and a half hours against the, the barrage, and Gooch had already been uh, facing it for plenty of hours beforehand. I mean, what do you talk about? I mean, how does he retain his, his concentration? Um, what goes through a batsman's mind while, while they're in the middle of an epic like that?
3: Well, I think lots of things go through their mind, but the, the secret is to simplify it when you actually come to facing the, the bowler. And, and, and I think Gucci was brilliant at doing that. I mean, I remember Robin Smith always saying, you know, if snorts Snorters' bowl at Gucci, one, he just holds the, line of the, the initial line of the ball, so he doesn't follow it. Uh, and that's very hard to do on occasions. Um, uh, and Robin Smith always said he struggled with that. You know, he, he was trying and you know, get a and ball somehow. And that can be fatal. But, you know, he had, a, he had a good series, that series as well, actually, the judge, Robin Smith. But I think there's nothing profound said between us, certainly. You know, it's just keep going. And, and, you know, he was determined because, you know, he experienced so many pastings at the hands of the West Indies that here was a chance here, you know, if, if we could get enough runs on the board that we might actually beat them. And uh,
0: he was very determined. There's much talk of these days amongst commentators and so on of momentum and targeting a, a bowler and stuff like that. I mean, <laughs> was a, any of that go on between you in a two-and-a-half-hour stand? You put 98 on in, a, a as we've said, a, a low-scoring match, or take each ball as it comes, as the cliche has it.
3: Well, they fancy their chance against anyone. The
0: West Indies attack normally, so <laughs> in a way they target everyone and no one. Yeah, um, but uh, thinking of, of yourselves as as batsmen, do you do you sense that a, a bowler is tiring and think, oh, there's going to be scoring opportunities here? And do you do you talk about that or do you? Well, I think what went in our favour,
3: what went in our favour for that test is that it was freakishly cold. I mean, it was in June, so probably not red hot anyway. But there was a bitter wind blowing, and I don't think they ever got fully loose the West Indies bowlers. I mean, they'd all played in county cricket. So the fact that the pitch was a slow seamer was not you know, something that was handi- handicapped to them particularly. But I think, I suppose, you felt that if there was a slight weakness and it was, it was only one in sort of accuracy, it would be Patrick Patterson. But he was, he was the most rapid, so you know, he had to be on your metal.
2: The idea that uh, you that you, uh, you see a bowler and think, oh, he's tiring, we'll get after him, but never applied the windows, of course, because all that happened was he just got another one come on. It was relentless. <laughs> it was just unceasing, aggressive, high-quality pace bowling, right through this, the mid to late 70s and through the 80s and into the 90s. It's what made them what they were.
0: Yeah, bowling at, what, 12, 13 overs an hour, I suppose, something like that. So uh, a
2: bit like this what they do now, isn't
0: it? Yeah, 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 I suppose you're right. Derek, the target is 278, and it's a stellar West Indies batting order what goes through the bowling unit's mind as they're called these days the bowling unit where it's the kind of target that is not uh impregnable so is it a bit of pressure or again do you do you just come in and say we'll we'll execute our skills or whatever the phrase is these days
3: well, I think we bowled them out for 173 in the first season and, and the, the order is, you know, same again, lads. It's, it's that simple, really. And, you know, as we, as we sort of worked out before the series, just keep it tight against them, make them work really hard. And, you know, if they, if they, someone plays a brilliant knock, there's no use getting head up about it and getting ahead of yourself. You've just got to take it as it comes and and just stick to your plan and see how it goes. And And... Luckily, on a pitch that still had a little bit in it, it was it was slow, but it was a slowish seamer. You know, they, they were always going to struggle. They'd, they'd have to play really well if we, if we
0: were disciplined to win that game. Rob, any uh, thoughts on, quite literally, a, a legendary Test match?
1: Just that it was England's first win, I think, at home since 69. I think what Derek said is really interesting, because even though, as a fan, I was very pessimistic going into it, by the time West Indies batted last, I was really confident, actually, that England would win, and I think then Phil Simmons went first ball, which kind of set the tone. They came back next morning, they were, there was a dodgy spell, I think they were about 60 for one, when Derek got Desmond Haynes, and after that, it kind of unravelled quite quickly. It was, it was a bit surreal to watch. I think one memorable bit in the first innings was Mark Rampakash batted really well in both innings, got kind of long 20s, which don't sound a lot, but in the context of a low-scoring game and on his debut were really admirable, but also he Set the move with a couple of bits of fielding. There was a one spectacular catch. I think it was to get rid of Phil Simmons, and then he ran out Carl Hooper soon after, and that kind of ushered England through to get a first innings lead, which had looked unlikely when they were bowled out for one ninety. So there were a lot of memorable moments in the game. I, mean, I wanted to ask Derek actually, what, didn't you turn down the light during your partnership um, with Graham
3: Gooch? Well, I, I didn't. I, didn't well, I was say. going to say, how did I you feel? Didn't, I, <laughs> I didn't have a say in it, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Gucci did. And he, and he always says, it's the first time I've ever turned down the light because, you know, I wanted to keep them out there.
1: Mm. No, which I thought was really interesting. And moments like that, I know they kind of gather symbolism after, but even at the time, that felt quite a big thing. And actually, just one last thing on this game, the West Indies collapsed twice, whereas England's... And this was a theme throughout the series, actually. Whereas England's lower would have got a lot of runs. Derek, Chris Lewis, De Freitas, even David Lawrence hit a kind of breezy 30-odd late in the series. And I think that was really important because if you go back to 88, it'd been the reverse, particularly Gus Logie and Jeff Dujon have constantly been a thorn. England would get them, you know, 80 for five and then they'd get away. And I think that was really important um, as a reverse for the roles and one of the reasons England were competitive. I think
2: there's one other element to this game, right? Which is a side issue that, we, that we, we should talk about, I think, because it's the, it was the genesis of the greatest anomaly in English cricket, in my view, that that, um, Graham Hick and Mark Ramprakesh make their debut in the same game. Now, you know, you look at the end of their careers, those two, and you get 77,000 runs in first class cricket between them, 250 first class centuries between them. And there's only eight of those in test matches. It is an incredible anomaly. And, you know, I'm sure we discussed it probably with, uh, with uh, about Graham before, but you wonder, don't you, how they, in the year of central contracts, would they not have dominated England batting as they ought to have done? I mean, England, England test batting for for a decade more, those two, and instead instead they didn't. And although, you know, one average 31, the average had 27, and, and you'd snap the hands off of that at the moment, wouldn't you? Um, <laughs> I mean, I just found it astonishing that there's that that such a disparity between two stellar players, and you know, Derek will, will bear that out. You know, they they they're unbelievably good players. Mark Ramprakash, the best technician of his generation, and for one reason or the other, it just didn't pan out in Test cricket. Yeah, you know, they played they played a lot. They played hundred and well, hundred and fifteen Tests between them as well, and it just didn't work. I, I just find that an astonishing anomaly.
3: Well, I just wonder. Um, not so much about Rance, but about Graham Hick, uh, you know, he, he waited so long to become an England Test player. And if you recall, in 88, I think he got 172 against the West Indies, didn't he, at Worcester in the county game against yeah. them. And everyone thought, oh, we can't wait until this bloke's <laughs> an England player, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that's the, that's the difference in mindset, really, because then he was young and he had he had something to gain. And then as soon as he got to where he wanted to go, it was something to lose. And that is the big shift in the mindset of how he yeah. played, I reckon.
1: What I, th- what I thought was interesting is his strike rate in this, this series, he averaged 11, which is obviously poor. He, his strike rate was 26, which suggests that he froze to some extent. The other thing is though, I think seven innings, he was dismissed six times by Ambrose, who apparently kind of took exception to all the hype. And I think if there's one bowler, certainly in my time watching cricket, who I wouldn't want to take exception to me, even more than McGrath Warren, it's Curtly Ambrose. Yeah. He just targeted him relentlessly and... Just, yeah got him six times out of seven. And I think
2: he would six, six, he's, he's probably right the right. most credentialed the most credentialed player ever to come into Test cricket. He got over 50 first class hundreds you know when he first played Test cricket which is astonishing and the expectation was was so high as Derek said you know that maybe the level of expectation uh, exceeded his own capability or capacity to so live with that. Rams was different. Rams was self-imposed, largely self-imposed, Restraints, if he expected too much of himself, or, or couldn't cope with the expectation of himself.
1: I, I don't know. But he started really well, Rabs, didn't he? I know his highest score was in the twenties, but he batted. A, I think he batted fifteen hours in this series in, yeah, in he rough. Twenties, didn't he? I was going to ask I mean, Eric actually because in ninety two he talks a lot about his head had gone basically by them ramps. Were there any signs in ninety one that it was he was too intense or that it was too much, or because from afar it, he just looked unnatural, even though he was only getting twenties.
3: There was a moment, yes, and it wasn't during that series. I think, I think he had a brilliant start to his Test career. That Headingley Test, you know, it's it's right it, You say he, sh- he shone, he shone everywhere. No, it was, it was actually on the, on the New Zealand tour. Ah, okay. Because everyone was so desperate for for Graham Hick to become a success because he'd waited so long, and everyone thought he was a, this, this fantastic player that uh, he was kind of given a go ahead of ramps, I suppose, in the build up to that, or, or certainly, you know, that was the mood that Hick was going to be given every chance to succeed. Ooh. And uh, Ramps did get a chance to bat in a in, a, in a warm-up game. And he chopped on for not very many. And he came off and he absolutely trashed his bat. I mean, turned it into smithereens in the dressing room against a pillar. And Gucci had been out earlier. He was just sitting there and he watched all this happen. And he just went up to Ramps after him and he said, if you ever behave like that again, you'll never play for one of my teams. Really? Wow.
0: Well, let's move to Lords for the second test, and it's really the the only dud in this fantastic series, and that's largely because it gets washed out. There's a, a hundred for Carl Hooper, which uh, must have been a delight to watch, if not necessarily to to bowl. <laughs> at, uh, and then Robin Smith makes 148 not out but the the game is is washed out I batted with Robin Smith uh, at the other end,
3: and and again, you know, Rob's just mentioned what a brilliant bowler Curly Ambrose was, well that day from the pavilion end I've, you know, I just had in my mind, there are bowlers and then there are bowlers, and he was absolutely incredible, I think he got four for uh, Ambrose in that test match but it was his duel with, with Robin Smith it was just incredible because, you know the ball was whizzing past the shoulder of the bat when it was holding up the slope from the pavilion end and then one would nip down the slope and hit judge in the midriff and he'd sort of, you know, big cry of oof and what have <laughs> you and r- rub it a bit. And then as soon as Ambrose was just a little bit offline, he clatter it a square cut for four. I mean, it was just an incredible duel, and watching it from the other end was, was one of those, one of those things that's an immense privilege. A little bit of an interesting uh, thing is that we were meant to meet the queen during that test match and on the day, it absolutely hosed down with rain and, uh, In those days, the Lord's outfit wasn't the sponge it is today. So by 3.30, the umpires had called it off because it hadn't relented. But at that moment, a call came through from the palace. You know, would we like to go over for tea? And and, both sides said, sure, of course we would. So we got dressed up and we went over to the palace and um, met the the, the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh for tea. And of course... (laughs) Alf Gooch, Gucci's dad, had been driving to the match every day because Gucci stayed at home in Essex uh, and didn't stay in the ho- team hotel. And uh, he'd come along for the trip because he'd come to pick Graham up as usual. And uh, he got bundled along into the trip to the, the Buckingham Palace and then the Queen sort of asked him who he was and he told her and he said, do you, know, do you know, Your Majesty, my wife will not believe where I've been for tea. She just won't believe it. The Queen went off, cut him a bit of cake, put it in a Buckingham <laughs> Palace napkin and said, She'll have to believe you now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> splendid, splendid. Well, um Robin Smith has also been one of our uh, players of the uh, week, so um I mean, Rob, I'm sure you've got plenty to comment on, on there. Maybe just a, a, a quick insight that you were the ghost for Robin Smith's uh, autobiography. Have you got anything about that uh, innings of 148?
1: Yeah, just that he thinks of it as the his best innings of his career because of the Situation, the conditions, it was quite an awkward pitch again. And the game was washed out, but it was washed out after. It was the last two days that were ruined. So at the time it looked like, and ultimately he did, he was fighting to save the game. I think England were like 80 for five in response to 420. And again, he got really good support from the lower order, which is a recurring theme. But yeah, I think because of that, because of his personal situation, he'd had a really bad ashes when he was expected to excel in Australia because of the hard, bouncy pitches. So it was a real kind of comeback innings, um, yeah, he thinks it's the best innings of his career. And also, this was the best summer of his career. He got another 100 later in the series. He manned the match in the NatWest final when he had this brilliant duel against Wacker. So, yeah, I think this was the high point of his career.
0: Well, great. Well, we'll move on to Trent Bridge. And England take a bit of a shellacking uh, here, losing by nine wickets. But, they, you know, they're, they, they make 300 in the first innings, So they're in the game. But then you've got uh, Viv Richards and Gus Logie. Um, What was it like bowling to Viv Richards, Derek? Well, lots of people talk about intimidatory
3: bowling. Well, he he sort of intimidated you as a batsman, just walking to the crease and eyeing you up as he did. Um, But, you know, as I say, I kind of of got used to it by then. I always felt with with him that if you could move the ball sideways, laterally against him, you had a chance because he liked to take you on. You know, he wanted he, he didn't want to prod around, blocking. He liked to, he liked to have a duel with the bowler, and and so if you could swing it or move it off the seam, he always had a, a a chance. But I remember that game. Um, he held play up for a while because there was some guy in the crowd at the, at the far end, not the pavilion, in the far end, who was, had a red sweater on. And was sort of prancing up and down behind, <laughs> and he kept pull it, pulling pulling up and said to the umpire, "This this damn joker up there, man." <laughs> and, he, and he started walking towards him. You know, at one stage, I thought this bloke better behave himself. He's going to be in trouble here because you know you won't want to mess with Viv. But um, yeah, yeah. Generally, I mean, he was. I was. I was like the challenge. To be honest, um, I came off second best most of the time, but occasionally, occasionally got got his wicket.
0: Mike, England were in the game until Marshall comes in at number eight, uh, makes sixty-seven, and England end up with a first innings deficit of of 97, which is not what you want to give to the West Indies' uh, bowling attack. Um, Marshall was one of many West Indian bowlers who could make runs when they needed to.
2: Yeah, they, they, he, he was perfectly capable bat in my in my experience. Um, you look at them, you think, oh, well, there's a great little long tail of bowlers there, but they could all swing. You know, Mikey, Mikey could, uh, could hold an end up, for example, when he played. And, uh, you know, those tail end runs sometimes it, it, it happens now doesn't it we see it a lot you know the tail come in and you think you're through it and the days of the of the heavy roller warming up when you know the night wickets are falling. fallen they, they've run out of gas now because because the, you, you get big partnerships people learn to bat more now malcolm was, a, was quite a natural player though wasn't he
3: yeah, good eye, and uh, perhaps didn't have a steady defence, but he
0: worked, he worked at it because he, he fancied yeah. himself at the bat. Indeed, and they were they were crucial runs because England's tail also did well, um, as Rob has, has mentioned throughout the series, and they gave England something to bowl at, but it turned out to be not very much in the face of Desmond Haynes and Richie Richardson, who knocked off... 115 to square the series, 1-1.
3: What, what was curious, Gary, if I can just come back a sec, there, yeah. um, is, is that these days, everyone you know, just assumes Trent Bridge, the ball moves around. Uh, they blame it on the, the stands and, the, and you know, the various stands they've had built there. But in those days, it didn't do anything. I mean, generally, a swinging ground would have been good for us, especially against a team like the West Indies, who like to take you on, You know, go for their shots. But I played, a, I think, three tests at, Alt, uh, at Trent
0: Bridge, and I don't recall ever moving the ball off the straight there. The pitches these days, you talk about home advantage, and there's consultation between the ground staff and the and the home coach as to what they'd like from the pitch. But in those days, that was that was seen as very much a sh- sharp practice. Was there any sense of of England? wanting to play on, on slow, low pitches to counteract the 90-mile-an-hour men who were coming at them from the other end.
2: I, thought, I think England had
0: a fair say in what they did. Again, different series. Derek, can remember the game,
2: I'm sure, at uh, Old Trafford, where England decided they were going to take West Indies <laughs> on, on big turning pitches. And they produced a big turner and uh, eventually, eventually got bowled out by Malcolm Marshall bowling cutters. Yeah. It was the one where Gat kept getting LBW with his bat up in the air. Um, <laughs> and, and afterwards, Viv, Viv said, you know, don't ever try that again. And Peter Maron, the groundsman, said, said, well, that's the last time they tell me what to do. That might have been Mickey Stewart, I think. So they did, and, and Ron would have still been groundsman then, Derek, wouldn't he, Ron also I'm pretty sure he was, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, Ron was a, Ron was a magician, he was an unbelievable groundsman he could produce whatever whatever people wanted so uh, i would suggest that he would try and for at Trent Bridge for that particular game or that type of game, a pitch that didn't do overly much.
3: Well, absolutely. And in that era, there was still the chief executive's pitch. You know, they wanted to go the distance if they could.
2: There was there was one thing happened in that game, which, uh, again, slips under the radar. That was Richard Ellingworth's debut, wasn't it? It was, a uh, yeah. Left arm spirit. And he got a wicket with his first ball. I'm pretty sure it was with his first ball. It yeah, was yeah it, was, it was. It through. Yeah. I always remember that because because there was a codicil to his career because his last ball went over the sight screen in <laughs> in his last ball of his test career. So he began with a wicket with his first ball and he and a six over the sight screen in his last ball. Six and out.
0: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, Rob, any any thoughts on on that test?
1: Um, well, no. I, only a slightly strange um, thing that Mark Selleck of Anderson Law, the guy who created this podcast, told me that he was at that test with Chris Martin from Coldplay the first day. So he'd been to school with him and he, he says he remembers being in the nets with him. And apparently Chris Martin was a huge cricket fan. He played with Chris Reid, like under 11, under twelves, And when he collected his, one of his first, one of his many Brit Awards in 2001, apparently he thanked Mr Tanner, his teacher, for stopping him or for introducing him to music. Otherwise, he'd have been playing second 11 cricket for Essex. So, yeah, apparently he was at day one at <laughs> Bridge.
0: which is a bit weird. Fantastic. Well, the series is square. They go to Edgbaston. Uh, England bat first. They make a hundred and eighty-eight again against a, a pace attack, sharing out the wickets. Only Gooch really uh, offers much resistance with forty-five, and then there's a hundred from Richie Richardson. Was he batting in a sun hat then? Do you remember Derek? If he if he was still batting in the hat, or had he gone to the helmet?
3: No, he never he never wore a helmet where I played against him. Yeah, he certainly wouldn't have bothered against me. Um, no. <laughs> What I do recall about that though is that um, they'd all become very watchful against me though they, they really just sat on me in, in that game because because I remember it actually that there was a nice light zephyr blowing at, at that ground and it was sort of I was born from the pavilion and it was coming from third man and that just I found held the seam up beautifully for swing you know sort of acting like a rudder the seam on the ball and uh, I swung the ball so I was pretty disappointed I only got one for but uh, in that innings, but they, they sat on me. And of course, I needed them to underestimate me, not to, not to treat me with respect.
0: And so <laughs> they weren't playing ball. It, yeah. it, it, was, it, it was an excellent match for Chris Lewis, who picked up six wickets and got runs as, as well. Um, well, what people forget,
3: Gary, is that Chris Lewis was probably scheduled to play the, the Henningley test, the first test, and pulled out at the last minute with a migraine. Uh, and then was was overlooked until that t- test,
0: because that was his first test back, I believe. Yeah. Chris Lewis is remembered for, for lots of things uh, these days, but um, he was a very talented uh, all-rounder. He was a terrific cricketer, wasn't he? Yeah, Tripping fantastic cricketer. athlete.
3: Fantastic athlete as well.
0: Yeah, as a bowler, what kind of pace was, was he at? Was he a bit quicker than yourself, Derek? Oh, much quicker. I mean, I,
3: th- I think that's what Graham Gooch found very frustrating about him, is that he could bowl 90 miles an hour. When he slipped himself. Uh, but he didn't seem to want to do that very often. Um, I don't know whether he thought, you know, I won't last long in the game if I, if I hurtle in the bowl that quick. But I always remember one day you know, after this series in, in the preamble to the 92 World Cup, we played a one day against New Zealand and he hit um, their opening batsman, Wright, uh, in the throat before he could move. And it was a speed, he bowled the speed of light that game. And, uh, you know, Gucci's sitting there going, why can't he do this more often? <laughs> He was a very lithe athlete. He was an athlete, as Derek, as Derek says. He was, a, he
2: was a, 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 a very elegant, actually batsman. Very talented batsman. He could
0: bowl very fast. And he was a, a gun fielder. He was a complete cricketer. Could have been a, a kind of Flintoff figure a decade or so before Flintoff became the Flintoff. It was, it was great
2: watching Richie Richardson too. You know, Richie, Richie Richardson's one of my all-time favorite cricketers and people, indeed. He's a fantastic player to watch in his prime. You know, he's got ten. I think he got 10 ashes, or ashes under, 10 hundreds against Australia, which is right up there with the most anybody's scored. He's a, a brilliant, brilliant player. And uh, in the hat, as Derek said, I I, I don't ever remember seeing Richie wear, wear a lid. His sun hat got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, I was in Perth actually watching a neutral test match, watching West Indies in Perth. It might, it might have been the currently seven for one game. At the uh, Channel Nine had a competition. One of the sponsored competitions, sponsored by Toyota or something. It was it was for the best Richie Richardson sun hat in the crowd, and it was won by it was won by five blokes, one of whom wore it, and four of them carried the brim on poles in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was about twelve feet across this thing, Brilliant. but that was that was like Richie Richie's hat. It got bigger and bigger every year. But he was just a oh, just a wonderful player in his in, in his prime. And Richie was going. I've got a I've got a, a summer at home. I've got a recording of a Richie Richardson calypso about Richie Richardson, and it's just it's just very evocative.
0: Well, we very much enjoyed it uh, on the on the boundary, so to speak, especially when Richardson was in partnership with Carl Hooper. I mean, Rob, that was just a delight, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it was. I, I suppose with Richie Richardson, there was as much, particularly as a Kemp fan, as I love Carl Hooper, there was a lot more substance, particularly around this time. I think he was certainly West Indies' best player. I think the rankings, he was second behind Graham Gooch. Viv Richards was obviously close to retirement. Yeah, he was just a fantastic player. I was, I was reading, there was quite, quite a lot of talk for the series that he couldn't play in English conditions because he lunged forward too much. And it sounds like he played a lot later in this series. And yeah, I mean, he was by far the best player. If you look at the averages, I think he... 495, 55, two centuries. Yeah, just a class act, really. And slightly yeah. underrated, I think, historically, probably because players like Greenwich and Richards were so kind of domineering and charismatic. I'm not saying Richard Richardson wasn't either of those, but I think maybe for my generation, he was slightly overshadowed, which is a bit unfair. He wasn't
2: overtly Antiguan, Richie. Mm. He's a very gentle person, which is sort of the antithesis to what you see with, with Viv or Kirtley or. Or Winston Benjamin, you know those those the kind of very aggressive cricketers. And Richie, he was it was aggressive in his way with the bat, but he was a very gentle person. And uh, and always it showed with his captaincy. Actually, later on, an entirely different captain of the West Indies. The fact that it was it, it was he was Viv's whipping boy a lot of the time. It seemed you know Richard, it was, and it was curious. It's Richard's son, isn't it? <laughs> you know, and, and and it seemed like that at times. But underneath it, he was, a, he was a very, very steely cricketer. I, I played against Richie when he first came to England in 84, and he, he got a 100 against Glamorgan as a, as a very young man. And he was, he was very impressive even back then.
1: One quick thing on the West Indies, because Brian Lara was in it and couldn't get in the team, although he would have played the fifth test but for injury, um, but they can't have been in too bad shape. if I think at that stage he played one test, But and he didn't get many runs in the county games, but it was still kind of recognised that... He was the emerging star, so the back was still in reasonably good shape if he couldn't get in.
3: My memory about Lara was that he broke his ankle and that he went back, didn't he?
1: Yeah, didn't he? I think he broke it possibly during training, ahead of the fourth test, and then went home.
3: I know he was on the couch during the one day as he was on the couch having treatment, and then it, something else happened, and then I think he, he disappeared, I thought.
1: Mm. Oh, well, I don't know. I, was, I, I read that he got before the fourth test, but uh, who knows? Yeah, right. and that he would have played but for when Lambert came in for the fifth game, but anyway... I think the first time we
2: really saw Lara, and I can't remember before that series, or it was when subsequently in the West Indies was, was in a, a game in Trinidad, Guadacara Park, in um, in Trinidad, a, a warm-up match, where he got 100, he called it Guadalajara Park then, after that, that there was the, you know, the, you, you might have written the headline, Rob, I don't know. It was, <laughs> yeah, that was the first time we really, I, I certainly remember seeing Brian uh, Lara. I think that was 89,
1: 90, I think. Yeah, so before, was it back yeah. then? Was it yeah, it back cause, then? Because then he played played one test in Pakistan the following winter. That he came on this tour, but um, didn't play another test tour that Australia tried Oh no, he might played against South Africa after the World Cup. But you forget he was only he was kind of twenty three, twenty four by the time he became established, which is quite relatively late when you think. Obviously, Tim Duker at sixteen and so on.
2: The game in Trinidad, Robin. Robin got ninety nine in that so, game. Devon right? Malcolm. Correct. He Devon was non-striker, and Robin got to ninety-nine. The end of the over, Devon's facing, and they had this conversation. Devon, right? You know, just, just, just see it out. Just block it out. Yes, he said. Yes, he said. <laughs> Had a huge mow and got, got bowled. <laughs> Robbie was left stranded on 99.
1: <laughs> to be fair, Devin, he saw into a century the following summer against India in a test because they had the same conversation. <laughs> and they said, this time, trust me, trust
0: me. And he, and he did. Well, West Indies, they knock off the uh, runs required. Uh, after a little bit of a scare, they were 24 for three, uh, chasing 152. But Hooper and Richards knock them off, which gives the West Indies a 2-1 lead going into the final test at the Oval. And um, England pick yet another two bowlers... um one Ian Botham and one Phil Tufnell. And um, why why did England pick so many uh, bowlers? Derek, you were, you you played four of the five Tests and you're one of the the ones who was picked most frequently. Was it injuries? Was it horses for courses?
3: Was it? Well, I I wondered about this, so I had a, had a quick check and and you know Steve Watkin, having taken uh, what, what did he take in the first test six wickets, five wickets or something in the first test at Headingley, he was left out two Tests later, and I thought maybe he was injured, but he wasn't. He played for Glamorgan when that test was on so and the same this time I mean I I missed out in that final test because between the team dinner and the next morning I'd I'd picked up some lurgy and and my I had a temperature of 102 so I was ruled out but uh, years afterwards I asked Gucci I said you know had I been fit would you have picked me ahead of beefy and he he said I can't remember (laughs) very diplomatically I think I think it was a must-win test so they probably, you know, they, they got the man who who, who likes to, you know, the miracle worker back. So uh, I probably would have missed out anyway. But um, although I, I thought I'd done a reasonable job with the ball. So who knows? But uh, he came back. And as you say, Tuthers came back. And I, I don't recall why Richard Ingram was suddenly dropped. Because he, again, he hadn't, he hadn't taken loads of wickets. But we hadn't really played on any turning tracks. So.
1: I think it was Curious. just classic, classic last test desperation. They needed a win. It was at the Oval. So that favoured the West Indies. And they just kind of ripped it up, didn't they? they? They dropped Jack Russell, brought Alex Stewart back as keeper who wasn't keeping... Well, it the and Lambie was dropped basket. as
3: well. Lammy yeah.
1: Was well, actually, one note on that. It's worth mentioning that um, the 2-3-4 for most of the series, Atherton, Hick and Lamb had really struggled. So England one was playing with two and a half bats with plus the lower order. I think between them, they averaged 10. So, which is particularly odd for Lamy because he was obviously so good against the West Indies. Exactly, yeah. Um, but it's interesting reading the reports at the time. Russell being dropped was a huge thing. It was seen as this kind of act of cultural vandalism to replace him with Alex Stewart, who actually then went on to have an almost flawless game with the gloves and got two good thirty on to think and as we know went on to become a brilliant keeper. But at the time it was a huge thing. It was in all even there was a Guardian leader that called it crazy. And it's just interesting to think it was that important that a Guardian leader's talking about the selection of an England wicket keeper. But yeah, it was a kind of bespoke team, never played together before, never played together again. And they won.
0: <laughs> Mike, what was the reaction in the press pack? Because this must have been like a gift from heaven, having both them back and Tufnell. Well, it was it a was, it was
2: gift to a lot of people. I, I mean, I, I kind of, that, that kind of thing washed over me, to be a bit honest. I I, I couldn't be doing with all the hype and that. I'd, like an easy the tabloid life, boy, as, you, so. as you know. Oh, right up the alley, wasn't it? And Tufnell as well. Tuffers was a good bowler. Tufels, you know, Tuffers was not a... Uh, a, a maverick choice. He was. He, he could bowl toughness. And, and the Oval was actually quite a good hunting ground for him, wasn't it? He, yeah. he, he got wickets there. And, and it did spin. I don't, I don't know, I don't recall whether it spun particularly <laughs> in that game, but I remember Clareton Cl- Lambert, wasn't it, having huge yeah. moat at him and got a big steepler and somewhere. And it was that kind of a... That was uh,
1: that was his first ball toughness, first ball on the third day. Oh, was Lambert, it? Lambert yeah. tried to launch him into Brixton. And then yeah. I think it was, they, and they they all kept trying to do it. And I think Tufnell took six for four in about 30 balls. Um, it, it, yeah, it, I've, I've it, no idea what it was. It, it did
3: spin. It did spin quite sharply, I thought, because the, the, the catch that Stewie, um, uh, Alex Stewart, caught off, off him to get rid of Viv was was an amazing catch. I mean, it's one, you know, Notty would have been happy with. It was superb because it took the shoulder of the bat and it moved a lot. And somehow Alec, Alec clung onto it.
0: Yeah, well, well, one gets the feeling looking at the figures that they rather worked. Tufnel out uh, six for 25 in the first innings and then one for 150 in the, in the <laughs> second but sometimes it can go that way um any kind of comments from Gooch about asking Viv Richards to follow on because I don't think that conversation would have happened with uh, with Viv very often um I just wonder <laughs> how Gooch communicated <laughs> to him that he'd like uh, he'd like the West Indies to have another go
3: I don't know, his, his squeaky voice probably. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think, Viv, I'd like you to have another bat,
2: mate. Once in a lifetime opportunity, isn't it? You know, you'd be, you'd be, you'd live the rest of your life regretting the day I could have asked the West Indies to follow on and didn't.
0: Yeah, well. West Indies as sides often do uh, make a much better fist of it following on. There's a century from Richie Richardson and there's runs from Hooper and Richards. And then England are faced with a target of 143, which they'd fancy themselves against sort of most attacks in the world and throughout most of history. But this was Ambrose, Marshall, Walsh and Patterson who were at the other end. Was there ever a sense in which England? Felt that they were not going to square the series with this test win.
2: I've, I've never, I don't think, all the time i reported cricket with England chasing a low total, ever felt anything other than dread <laughs> that they were, were going to cock it up. Uh, completely unjustified, of course, but it's a natural, natural England followers' pessimism, isn't it? Uh, and you see a couple of wickets go down, you think, you know, you, you hark back to Trinidad and the inevitability of that, and there is. Sometimes, when well, almost inevitably, with a with a, a collapse, itself generates doesn't it? It gains a momentum, a life of its own, a, a real, genuine England collapse. It's a uh, it's a natural phenomenon, uh, I mean, and there's, it's always that in the back of your mind, isn't there?
0: It absolutely is, and uh, Rob, these would be days before the over-by-over coverage would be coming in, but had there been an over-by-over coverage, you would have been inundated with, with doomed emails and tweets and everything else, wouldn't you?
1: Yeah, and even more after the first wicket, actually, because Hugh Morris, who got a hell of a working over in the first innings for 40-odd, in the second, it's worth looking up on YouTube, he gets like the definitive snorter from Patrick Patterson. I have no idea how you play it. Edges it behind, three for one. But actually, what's interesting is England did lose wickets, but they, they rattled along. They needed one forty. Six and they got it in 31.4 overs, which in those days is a crazy rate. So it all happened really quickly. I mean, there was panic, they were dropped to 80 for four at one point, and that was with Smith and Gooch gone, the two kind of pillars of the summer. But then Alex Stewart, as we said, who had a really good game. It's so easy to forget now. 2 2 draw against the West Indies. This is one thing that annoys me about this series. It's kind of been not forgotten but diminished slightly because the West Indies yeah. struggles. At the time, this this was pretty much 2005 without the MBEs. It was a huge achievement. And actually, there was someone for The Guardian called Mike Selvie who wrote, It was, let me find this. No, it's a really nice <laughs> quote. It's um, possibly the most stirring of post war deeds by the England team and arguably the grandest of them all. That's how it was perceived at the time, and I don't think that should diminish because. I know West Indies were slightly in decline, but they were still unbeaten for over a decade in the series. England hadn't even drawn with them since I think the sixties at home. Like, it was a, it was an absolute huge day. I, I think easily or fairly comfortably England's best Test series performance in the nineties. I know they won a few, most famously against South Africa, but this is the one. Certainly, as a fan, that kind of I have the most warmth when I remember.
0: Yeah, I I think I recall. I think it was Frank Keating writing in The Guardian about the final ball of the series where uh, both of them had strode out with even needing four to win and then hit his first ball for four and the headline whether it was written by Keating or not I don't know, was the game's not over until a fat man swings which was um <laughs> which was was very good I recall at the at the time um Derek, you you played in four of the tests, if not the fifth one. Was that the sense from the players that this was a an enormous achievement or disappointment in that there were chances, particularly the rain off match at Lord's, could have been won, albeit England were slightly behind in the game?
3: No, I think we, we felt a grand sense of achievement. And, I, and actually, I was allowed to come back to the Oval after I'd, uh, I'd got a bit better. I had, I, in fact, I, I'd recovered after about two days and went off to play a Sunday league match for Essex. Uh, against Northampton and then came back to the Oval to to witness proceedings. And uh, I remember, you know, as Rob was saying, that West Indies was still the best team in the world. And they had a big support base there on the, on that last day after the end. And they were all outside, the, you know, waving up to the team. And Viv was, you know, putting his finger up, number one, we're still the number one team, don't forget it. We haven't lost this series, just to let you know that. <laughs> <laughs> so we felt, you know, yeah we, we'd done pretty well to hold them at two all.
1: And there was a lot of goodwill, wasn't there? There was a quote from Lance Gibbs, the tour manager. He said it was the happiest, the most sporting of tours I can remember. And that was quite important, particularly because what had preceded it was West Indies Australia, which was incredibly spiteful. Um, and it just seemed like the spirit of the whole series was really good throughout.
3: Well, there was a little bit of suspicion of, of you know, ball tampering or whatever in that last test match because the ball started to reverse swing. And I think uh, oh, okay. the umpire, John Holder, Decided to have a word with Gooch, but uh, the West Indies, as was their one, they they didn't complain at all.
0: Do you get anything, Derek? Um, are there medals? Are there you know, obviously there aren't the MBEs after two thousand and five? Is there, is there any kind of official presentation or recognition of of a series? Because I think we see medals now, and this kind of you know the whole kind of TV. Sort of set up where the sponsors' names are behind, but in in those days you just, just sort of opened the uh, the beers and and enjoyed yourselves didn't you yeah I don't recall being presented with anything that is for certain
3: but but in those days things mysteriously would turn up so you, you'd get a, a set of cut glasses or something you know depicting that you'd played
0: in a series, but they weren't they weren't given you to you at the end of it you know, officially in any way. Yeah, seems surprising. One player we haven't spoken about who did well in the uh, series, t- played all five test matches, took 22 wickets, an average under 21. When you look at the uh, the batsmen who are at the other end, that's pretty impressive, is Phil De Freitas. Mike, uh, Phil De Freitas, he was a, another player who didn't quite a- achieve his potential for England, although he obviously did in this series.
2: Yeah, he's it, sort of come under the radar a bit there. You know, he was the first... Pretty much the first time we mentioned him in the yeah. in the series, and you say twenty two wickets. And so I think Derek probably next uh, uh, highest wicket in that series. I think. Yeah. So he obviously contributed all the way through without high achieving in any particular inning. Did he take? Did he take a five for
3: anyone? Did no. he? he didn't take a five
1: for no. He didn't take a five. For. No, his best was no, four for. Th- Thirty-four in the first innings at Headingley, which kind of also set yeah. the tone. But yeah, he was just very consistent. So you, you
2: you you're plugging away. He was a again. He was a all-round player as well. You know, he was a, a lively bowler. He hit the deck pretty hard. He was he was sort of upper side of fast speed. He wasn't a quick bowler, um, Daffy. He could be a robust batsman. Do you remember he got good runs in Adelaide that time, didn't he? For yeah. example, in the win there, on W, I um, I think. Oh no, Atlanta
1: was it on he got runs yeah. in Adelaide, but but he got runs in the debut at Brisbane. But he, ah. I think Sel was talking about the eighty-eight when he yeah. smashed McDermott yeah. all around the place. Yeah,
2: he was just a very reliable bowler, and and I think it was a series that was looked to have been until the until the last test where you you might say you're not looking at such reliable bowlers if you've got you've got beefy um, Ladley and Sid playing Sid Lawrence and but you've it seemed to me that the hallmark of that series, as, as Derek said at the start, I think, was that you were going to put pressure on them. And you did that by bowling relentlessly. And Daffy and, and was capable of doing that.
3: Well, D- Duffy, um 29% of his uh, overs were made in that series.
2: Oh well, there you go. I mean, that that that's kind of he's doing the job, isn't he? He's doing the job that yeah, he was asked
3: to that's, do. That's what we set out to do: try and pull yeah. main, mains at them, and if, if there was a bit in the pitch, you know, try and take advantage of that. I mean, it's interesting, Rob. You say there were there were nasty pitches. Uh, my memory is they were slow. They were quite, they quite done, slow, at apart they from might have oval. done a little yeah. bit, but they weren't nasty. Pitches.
1: No, no, <laughs> the oval looked terrible. That's the kind of paradox that I think the first four were relatively slow seamers. You go to the oval and think, well, that's it. You know, West Indies won the last two. It's going to be three one. And then England somehow win. And I think it all stems from the score. I think they scored 400 for the first time in about 70 innings against the West Indies. Yeah. Which is a ridiculous stat. But to get that on the board kind of gave them a chance. But you're right. I, I mean, I think the series is remembered for Gooch, Smith and maybe Tuffman sixth. For, but actually, Phil De and to Derek were the two kind of unsung heroes, both with bat and ball. I think I really think the lower order runs are really important because it was a complete reversal of um, what happened generally with England. And also what would happen subsequently with England in the Ashes. It was often, you know, five out, all out and so on. So, yeah, I think they were kind of two of the pivots of... I was going to say the win. It kind of felt like a win during the West Indies. I think that oval
2: pitch was... I think that was the one where... where I think Hugh, Hugh Morris opened the, <laughs> opening the batting against Kirtley in the first innings. And the first ball from Kirtley just went seared past his nose. And uh, off a, you know, not far short of a length. And you see Kirtley came all the way down the pitch to him and just said to him, you have a nice day now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. That's how to sledge. Well, it was a series that um, was a, a a kind of swan song to some of those West Indies uh, greats that we've spoken about, certainly in in England. And there was the, the kind of uh, false dawns that we've already talked about for Ram and, and Smith, is there is there anything else that emerges from this series as in terms of long term trends or implications?
1: No, I mean Tufnell went on a run of winning tests. I think he was man the match in this was the f- not man the match, but this was the first of three consecutive tests in which he took a five from bowling to victory, and it looked like we'd really found a spinner. And um, and then I mean that's a completely different pod. But he I won the next game against Sri Lanka to end the summer. That he took that 7 for 47 in New Zealand. Um, but no, I think that's kind of, the, it's quite bittersweet looking back, particularly the oval test, because it's one of my favourite tests. But actually, you look at what felt like either breakthrough performances or signature performances for some, a lot of players, and it kind of ultimately didn't amount to much. Even, you know, Chris Lewis had a really decent yeah. game. Um, Tuffnall, this was Robin Smith, the peak of his career. I know he had a brilliant career, but... His England kind of time slowly got a bit more difficult. Even you know, Hugh Morris got that really good 44 and was hit god knows how many times. I think he only played one more test. Even Mark Ramprach, you can make an argument which sounds stupid because he got test hundreds, but you can argue that he was never kind of truly at peace at test level again after this game because I think he put pressure on himself against Sri Lanka, got a duck, then went to New Zealand, wasn't picked, and as Derek said, and so there's, it's kind of quite bittersweet in back West, and also because it was the end, the last test for Viv Richards, Jeff Dujan, Malcolm Marshall, Gordon Greenwich played his last international earlier in the tour. We didn't necessarily know that at the time, but I think everyone kind of knew it would be Viv's last game. So there was that whole thing about however many he needed to average 50 and he got it in the second innings. So it's kind of a, a very happy memory, but also quite a poignant one.
3: Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. David Lawrence David Lawrence didn't play much yeah after that, of course because he? Yeah. he split his knee in the New Zealand, Zealand. test later yeah.
1: and even obviously Malcolm Marshall's last test and then you think what happened eight years later yeah so it's quite quite bittersweet really
2: the yeah, signs were already there the West Indies going a little bit weren't they you know when you when you see Clayton Lambert in there and Phil Simmons in there who you know they they'd earned their places but they weren't up there with with the the greats of the 70s and the 80s you know the absolutely stellar batting lineup and and England were still in that area. They were sort of ten years off uh, having that continuity of, of, you know, introduction of central contracts and so forth. So it was always done, seemed to be done on an ad hoc basis, didn't it? Match by match, you know. Well, who are we going to pick for this game? Who are we going to do? So there was a, there. There wasn't really that continuity that you get nowadays.
1: Do you know actually what was quietly the big breakthrough of this test was Alex Stewart because he played a few tests and done okay in Australia, came back, was criticised, had a great game. Followed up against Sri Lanka, then went to New Zealand, opened the back, and I think he's got two hundred in a three-test series, and almost in the blink of an eye, he went from an outsider to a, an absolute banker in the Test team.
0: And he was twenty-eight at this time.
1: Yeah, I mean his role changed. You know, here he's back six and keeping in New Zealand, he was opening and not keeping. But I think it was a really important Test for him, because there was all that stuff about nepotism and a bit of suspicion, which probably wasn't fair. Well, in fact, he proved it wasn't fair because how good he was. But yeah, he he was kind of quietly. The, the big breakthrough maybe in this game for England, and he kept beautifully, as as Derek said. It was always
2: difficult one that for for Mickey, wasn't it? When Mickey Mickey was in charge, Mickey, you know, used to call everybody, but everybody in the England team, son, except the one
0: person who was qualified <laughs> to be called that. Who used to call Alex Stewart? It was quite bizarre. And what we didn't know was looming on the horizon, probably in a in some bars rather than on the field at, the, at that time, where a couple of Australians, one called Ricky Ponting and one called Shane Warne, who are going to tilt the balance of Test cricket away from the West Indies and bring a lot of pain to uh, England as well. Um, so before we, we wrap up, gentlemen, any any further reflections on what I, I think we can call a, a, a great series that is unfairly forgotten?
2: No, I mean, my own Uh, recollection of that series just just goes back to to gucci in the first test match there that one innings kind of set up england i think for the rest of the summer there it showed what could be done without that innings they'd they'd have lost that game no question and you lose that game and suddenly it's here we go again it was a little bit like you know winning that game in jamaica that time against the uh, against the odds it kind of sets it up a little bit more it makes you believe what you can what you can do and i think they fed on that uh, I'm sure they fed on that. Uh, I can't be doing it. Derek even know, but I, I'm i sure that they... That That's why it's the, it, it's the greatest of things.
3: Well, that, I mean, certainly, certainly there was uncertainty, as there always is when you play against a great team like the West Indies, that we can compete with them. And, of course, that showed us we could. And as far as I'm concerned, it, it's the greatest series I was involved in playing for England and and the one I enjoyed the most, mainly because I think Graham, you know, as a catcher, my captain at Essex, knew, knew how to use me best and got the best out of me.
1: Yeah, I, I think as a fan and just an observer, it's my favourite series apart from the 2005, certainly before the 2005 Ashes, it was it felt as big in 91 as the Ashes did in 05. And I know they won in oh five, but they kind of didn't need to win against West Indies. It just put a full stop on a run of series defeats, usually heavy defeats. Just one thing we haven't mentioned, which is in some ways my abiding memory of it, is the... Um, the leg-over commentary from the first innings at the Oval. (laughs) They had a documentary recently on uh, TMS, and it just, no matter what movie, it's such a cliche, but it just never fails to make me laugh. And if I listen to it, pick it up after a year, I haven't heard it. It's just the Brian Johnson, Jonathan Agnew commentary when Ian Botham was out hit wicket. It's just one of the most perfect bits of radio. And yeah, if you're ever feeling down, just stick that on and it will cheer you up.
0: Well, it's often said that the 1990s were a grim time for England in Test cricket, but we've just found a, a fantastic series in '91 that had its its ups and downs, and perhaps not the fulfilment of some of the careers that could have been launched. But what a! What a tremendous uh, series it was. And um, I think that's a good note on which to complete this episode of the 80s and 90s Cricket Show. So we'll thank our guests. Mike Selvey, thank you, Mike. Pleasure, as over Derek Pringle, thank you, Derek. Yeah, cheers, Gary. And Rob Smythe, thanks very much, Rob. Cheers, Gary. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at Crickshow80s90s.